0: from sydney australia is uh, an absolute legend to so anyone that remembers sports from the 80s or onwards it, um, we're very pleased to say good morning and good evening actually to mr craig johnston how are you craig
1: yeah pretty good mate pretty good pretty good and yourselves we're not bad we're not bad coping thanks <laughs> well we say not too shabby not too shabby mate and and um can i call you mr dazzler you can yeah, Mr. Mr. Dazzler, I'm not in Sydney. Ah. Oh. It's like it's like saying a Scouser's in London. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, oh. You know, or a Londoner's in Ballyricky, you know. Uh, I'm actually in a place called Newcastle, which has a very proud history and heritage. So, um yeah, I'll ju- I'll just put you right there.
0: <laughs> My apologies. My apologies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're right. So, um
0: who's that man in the picture on the wall behind you? I don't recognize him.
1: <laughs> well, Mate, you know what? He's a funny one. He's a funny one. He's Australian. And uh, he had this weird dream when he was a kid, uh, when he was in a hospital bed in 1966, black and white television. uh, And he saw uh, the glorious uh, Wembley Stadium in black and white. And England were playing in the World Cup. And in the same World Cup was Pelé and... uh, uh, all these great players, and uh, Bobby Charlton and his brother Jack. And um, I, I was at the Hospital, and the hospital's right here over my right shoulder where I live now, back home in Newcastle. So I was in hospital, and the um, the doctors had uh, diagnosed that I'd, uh, I, I had polio in my right leg, uh, and they were going to amputate my right leg, which would have been funny because that, that would have slowed me down on the wing. <laughs> so so, so the, the thing is that uh, uh, there was a touring doctor from America and he, um, he said, I don't think this is polio. I think it's osteomyelitis. He was a specialist. So he said, if you let me operate, um, I, I think I can save the leg. So mum had to sign the, uh, the papers and, and he did. Uh, so I uh, had six months uh, you know, in the hospital, but when I came out, I had this love of soccer from watching England, in black and white, win the World Cup in 1966. Uh, and that was the, basically the start of my, um, my football dreams and ambitions.
0: So you, you bypassed cricket then? Because we're, we're very intrigued that someone born in South Africa to Australian parents went down the football route, or, or was there some cricket along the way?
1: Oh, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Well, when I got out of hospital, I was on crutches for about uh, three or four months, and the doctors... Um, said you cannot play a contact sport with the, uh, the osteomyelitis. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got like uh, 60-odd stitches down my leg to prove it. Um, and I can show you, uh, your viewers won't be able to see it, but you, you, you blokes will be able to see it. It's still there. And, uh, and basically said, you have to play cricket or you have to surf, uh, both of which I did. So I actually ended up playing um, for Northern New South Wales as a batsman, opening batsman and opening bowler. So um, I spent a lot of time playing cricket and surfing, uh, but my love, I kept drifting back to soccer. And uh, when I was in the backyard, I wouldn't practice cricket. I'd pa- practice juggling the ball. And somehow I, I fell in love with the uh, the pure simplicity of, of a soc- soccer ball, which uh, which is a perfect object. And uh, I fell in love with soccer and fell in love with the soccer ball. So. I, even though I've selected for the state and I went and, um, and, and played really well, uh, in fact, there was, a, there was the opening bat and the goalkeeper with me was a, goal, uh, was a, a guy called Greg Geese. And Greg, all the Australian cricketers like it, it, Greg and Ian Chaplin and those, they all know Greasy, uh, Geesey. And uh, so we both represented our state, northern New South Wales, in cricket and soccer. He went on and he had a glorious cricket career. Um, and then, then I, um, I went to Middlesbrough to have a trial um, uh, when I was 15. So let's
0: talk, uh, let's talk soccer. T- tell us about your, uh, your road to Liverpool FC. How did that happen?
1: Well, well, um, as I said, I was in a, in a hospital when I was six years old and I saw the, the famous Charlton brothers. And um, when I was about uh, 12 or 13... I said to mum and dad, I I really want to go to England and try and make it. Um, And mum, who was a school teacher and a a headmistress at certain schools, said, well, if you come first in science, maths and English, (laughs) we'll pay you fair to go to England to be a a soccer player. Not thinking that either would happen, um, but I studied like no kid had ever studied before. uh, And I got such extraordinary good results in science, maths and English no, I didn't come first. I came second in one, third in another, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they had to put up their part of the bargain. Problem is we're working class family. Dad was a mechanic, mum a teacher. And we had no money. So they sold their house and moved to a much smaller one in, in the bush, further out in the bush, to pay for my uh, my trip as a 15-year-old uh, in 1975. So, um, that was the first part, and I arrived in, um, in England uh, in December in the middle of winter in London and had to catch the train. This is before uh, mobile phones or anything like that. It was black and white television still. Uh, so I got up to Middlesbrough, right, and I had a little note that, that had been uh, sent six months before that said, make your way to a place called Hutton Road for the trials. So anyway, I found this place, Hutton Road, and uh, it was snowing, it was raining, it was, it was freezing cold and uh, the trial match was on, right, in 15 minutes. So somehow I just made this trial match. Uh, and anyway, they said, uh, hey, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Australia. They said, oh, mate, well, stick your boots on and get out there straight away. So stuck, stuck my boots on, straight straight into it. And there was a bunch of Scottish, Irish, English, and Welsh trialists all trying to be picked by um, Middlesbrough, by the coaches. And the intensity of play was ferocious. So I got, got on there and I, uh, I'd never experienced ever anything like this ever in my life. And to, to this day, I never have, but I got kicked in the shins. I got side down by the kneecaps. I got tackles flying up around my ears, you know, off the young Scot- Scottish lads. Uh, and what I didn't realise is that at half time we were getting beat three 0 and Jack Charlton was actually at the tri- at the trialist game. So they were trying to in- in- impress Jack Charlton with how hard they are. Anyway, Charlton was fuming and he was bright red with rage, and he came into the dressing room and he had a go at everyone. And one by one, from the left to the right, right round the dressing room, he said, "You're rubbish. You're useless." you're hopeless, right? (laughs) Uh, He said, awful, ordinary. And he got to me, he said, mate, where are you from? Uh, In his big Geordie accent, I said, um, well, I said, my name's Craig Johnson. I'm from Newcastle, Northern New South Wales, Australia. He said, well, you are the worst footballer I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) With his big Geordie accent, he said, now hop it, right, back to Australia, like that. But he didn't say hop it. He said yeah. the appropriate word yeah. and, uh, and I said to him naively, what now? Meaning half time. He said now, hop it. You know, so everyone was a little bit shocked, especially me. So I packed my little bags up and uh, zipped them up and went out the, uh, the, the door, the dressing room. And it was pouring with rain and snow. And I had sleet and mud all over me. And I burst into tears, um, and I didn't know uh, where the digs were, where I was supposed to stay with the trialists. So um, I knew I couldn't stay around. The, the I was so embarrassed and humiliated. So I went out um, onto the streets and uh, tried to find, uh, trying to find a taxi or something. I was jet lagged, uh, and I was bruised and battered. My knees were all bleeding. Where I'd been, you know, cut by the um, the studs, so I had to flag someone down, right? And the bloke that stopped could see that I was I was bleeding, yeah. And he said he said, "What happened to you, boy? What happened to you?" And I said, oh, "I just had a trial uh, at at Hutton Road." He said, "A trial?" I said, "Yeah, Jack chart was there. Jackie Charlton. You've had a trial with Jackie <laughs> bloody Charlton." He said, "Hop in, lad. Hop in. Hop in." <laughs> I, I jumped jumped in the car. And he said, where are you going? I said, I don't know. And I burst into tears again. I said, um, I said I, I've, I've come from Australia for a trial. Right? He said, oh, you're staying at the Medhurst Hotel. That's where they put all the young kids from everywhere. That's where they put them up. So he said, I'll take you there now. So anyway, he dropped me off. Uh, he said, don't forget me when you're famous. Right? I said, I won't, mate, I won't. You know. Um, then he, uh, There was a lady called Nina Postgate. Said, uh, come in. She said, um, what happened? I burst into tears. I told her. And she said, look, I'm really sorry. You can't stay here. This is for trialists that make it only. And uh, you have to go. She said, before you go, you know, and this was getting on to 7, 8 o'clock at night now. She said, I'll give you uh, um, some beans on toast, some melted cheese with beans on toast. Right. And I was jet lagged. I was bloody. I was soaked. And I had rasta hair, by the way. I was a surfer. Seriously, I had rasta hair. And all the snow and and stuff was stuck in my hair. And I'm eating this um, beans on toast. And I said, look, she said, look, I've thought about it. She said, I can't throw you out. You've come all the way from Australia. There's a coal shed out the back. But don't you dare tell Jack Charlton or any of the coaching staff or any of the boys that you're staying in the old coal shed. She said, there's a heater in there. And she said, there's a bed. Right, she said, but you'll have to hose yourself down with the hose in the backyard. So I said, well, that's great, that's great, thank you so much. And she said, she said, well, good night. I said, look, one last thing, I have to phone my parents. She said, well, there's a, a phone box, a money phone box under the stairs. She said, so you'll have to use reverse charges. I said, what's that? She showed me after half an hour, I got onto my mum, right? And mum said, Craig, yes, she, Have you landed in London? I said, Mum, I'm in Middlesbrough. I've had a trial. So Jack Charlton was there. And Mum's gone, Colin, Colin, come to the phone. (laughs) Jackie Charlton was there, he's had a trial. So Dad comes to the phone and he says, proud as punch, he says, what did he say, lad? What did the famous Jackie Charlton say? I said, Dad, he said I'm one of the finest players he's ever seen in his life and he wants me to stay. And I hung the phone up, and I burst into tears again. And old Nina cuddled me, and she said, "Look, you've got to get into the coal shed. The boys will be coming." And that was it. That was my introduction to English football.
0: <laughs> so, so how did you end up joining Liverpool?
1: I oh, left part two. Ah, you're going to have to invite me back on the show, <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> tell we haven't you even worked out how how the. Uh, how the story goes from telling, from being told you're the, one of the worst players to <laughs> telling your dad that you've made it. Well, we're a long well, way from Liverpool yet. I grew up. I grew up on stories. Have you ever heard of a guy called Donald Bradman? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you know the famous story about Donald Bradman? Go on. Okay. Well, a lot of players of his generation and ilk, right? They used to use a cricket bat against a brick wall, right? And they used a tennis ball. And what they would do, they would hit the tennis ball against the brick wall, and before it hit the ground, they'd hit it again, hit it again, hit it again. All cricket players have done it. You've done it, right, Webby? Mm-hmm. You've done it, right, Daszla?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I,
1: I-, I-, I spoke to Steve War about this, and um. He's now. He's a good mate of mine. He's, he's a big red, by the way. He's, he's a Liverpool fan. Steve and his brother. So and uh, you, you know Duncan, our, our mutual friend. Yeah. I've talked to, to all of them about this. So Don Bradman, right, did loads of that, and then he progressed. What he did famously, he then got a corrugated iron sheet and put it against the brick wall. Rather than using a tennis ball, he used a golf ball, and rather than using a, a cricket bat. He used a cricket stump, So when he then used a cricket bat with a tennis ball and a brick wall, it was easy. So I grew up on stories like that, you know, and and I was a a really good student. I was very good at science and maths. So I always saw things in a very cold um, sort of scientific way. And and, uh, so basically I invented a series of games, right, while hiding in the Middlesbrough car park, and actually hiding in a coal shed to hide from Jack Charlton, some of the, the, the older um, professionals at, at the club, the Middlesbrough club, had heard about the roasting. One of them was actually playing in that England uh, World Cup team of 66, winning team. His name was Terry Cooper. He was left fullback. Yeah, I remember him. Full guy. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful man. Beautiful human being. Did he go to Arsenal? Another one. Hmm? Did he go into Arsenal? TC, no, he was Leeds United. Oh, okay, Leeds yeah, United. yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then he went down to Bristol, became a manager. The yeah. other chap was Graham Souness, and uh-huh. Graham had come from Tottenham to Middlesbrough, and he was basically the captain of Middlesbrough. He heard about what Charlton said, and he, and, and he actually said, he said, well, look, if you wash our cars, right, the players' cars, and you clean our boots, we'll all give you some money, we'll chip in, and as long as you're hiding... At, 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 in the car park at Middlesbrough and Charlton doesn't see you then you you can uh, uh, save up enough money to go home so that's what saved my life and saved my career but at the same time every day I, I built a little um, obstacle course in the Middlesbrough car park which funnily enough was roughly the size of a penalty box so then I which is Forty-four yards by eighteen yards, if you didn't know, imperial measurement. Six-yard uh-huh. box, twelve-yard penalty spot. But you know how big the goals are.
0: Um, is it
1: um, seven foot six? The crossbar. No. No. standardised all over the world. Two two facts for you. Two bits of data and stats. Did you know that every soccer field in the world is a different size? Oh really? There's no, there's no standardised size. There's a maximum and a minimum and there's a whopping differential. Yeah. The only thing that is standardised is a penalty box, which is 18 yards by 44 yards, all over the world, imperial measurement, because you POMs invented the game and you invented mm-hmm. the measurements, <laughs> and they stand today. Yeah, so always I replicated, that- right, I drew in paint and chalk a standardised penalty box and a goal, right, and I'll tell you what it is right now, and you won't forget it because it's easy, it was eight yards by eight feet high. So right. using those fundamental measurements, I created obstacle courses for, for controlling the ball and passing the ball and dribbling and shoot because there's only really two skills a player ever does for 90 minutes. He gets the ball and he gives it, right? Yeah. If you don't get the ball fast enough and accurately enough and you don't give it fast and accurately enough, well, you lose it. Good players don't lose the ball because they do it faster. So that's using all that uh, and, and what I created was an attempt to mistake ratio by drawing uh, goals and, and and targets on the goals and we've all done this on the garage wall, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We've all done it with cricket, we've all done it with soccer, we've all done it with tennis. So I use that but at the time what I was crea- creating was a mistake to attempt ratio and for the four drills if, if I concentrated I could do those skills after my job. So I got up at five o'clock in the morning. I got there before Charlton and the players, right? When they went to training, I went back to the car park. And then when they went home, I'd done all the chores and I'd do, you know, my four or five hours. Now, if I really focused, then I could get home in three hours and I could have the beans on toast with the, the melted cheese with, with the young professionals and the apprentices and I became one of them. So I came out of, out of the, the coal shed and they gave me a room and, and Charlton knew I was around, right? But I became the cleaner, so he tolerated me. And I did a good job, cleaned the, the, uh, the bathrooms, the, uh, the, the, the boot room was my specialty. So that's how I got then, by, by, if you do anything for three, four, five hours every day, you get better at it. So I'll tell you the story, Webby, because you asked me the direct question, within two and a half years from being 15-year-old, at at 17, I think four months and a number of weeks, I became the youngest player ever to play for Middlesbrough. And I made my debut against uh, uh, Everton. And uh, and that's the story. Um, Because I actually applied myself um, by creating, what I was doing, I actually created data before the, the word data was ever known in football <laughs> or, or probably anywhere else. Because I knew if I got home in three hours rather than four or five hours, I'd hit the target more often for the four skills, the targets. <laughs> so basically, I knew that my job in life, apart from getting back to Australia and, and with the money, right, now I became one of the lads and they, they liked me, right, because I was cleaning their boots and kit. They were paying me right but now I was actually in the team you know the youth team then the reserve team and uh, and then and then the first team but here's here's the thing that data I knew that I could be a better player at night than when I woke up that morning by how long I could get all of my skills tests done faster and more accurately and that is the art of playing good football
0: you mentioned there the, with the word boot room. And of course, when you did eventually turn up at Anfield, you played under the legends of the boot room, Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan, and then latterly Kenny Dalgleish. Um What was it like playing for those guys and at that time, one of the great Liverpool sides? How did uh, how was the experience arriving there?
1: Oh, just like a, a dream, a, a dream like you were in a dream, and it wasn't real. Um... And uh, yeah, it it was hard to talk to them because they were up there, you know. Um, Yeah, it's like any any person that meets their idols uh, and wants to be one of them. And you know, and and once upon a time, the concept of a professional footballer was an abstract thought. You know, that's why all these young Scottish, Irish, Welsh, English kids were kicking me as a, a fifth, hurting me, trying trying to break your legs. Yeah, basically so that you weren't taking their jobs. And then, you know, two and a half years later, I'm in a Middlesbrough team. Then three three years after that, you know, 20 years old, I'm now in the dressing room with, you know, King Kenny and Sue <laughs> and, and Ian Rush. And, uh, y- y- you know, uh, even back then, Terry McDermott, uh, Ray Kennedy, uh, Barney Rubble, you know, the fullback, uh, Alan Kennedy. Uh, Mate, the names went on and on. Uh, Steve Highway was uh, still there at the time. So, um, one uh, of our listeners,
0: sorry, um, one of our listeners, um has asked us to ask you about: Did you have any particular intuitive relationship with any of that side that you know that suited your style of play? That they would always know where you would be and what ball to pass to you? Did was anyone? It,
1: it, it, it's a good question. Um, and there, there was, it was almost telepathic and his name was Stevie Nicholl and he was the right fullback, right? And the Liverpool style of play, a little bit like today, this is you know 40 years ago we're talking now, but a little bit like now, you, you get the ball from there and you don't even look and you pass it on there. Uh, and sorry, I've done that as a visual, but you know where your players are, right? And yes, they're screaming and shouting, but with Steve Nicholl, to answer directly the question... I just knew I could hear him running up outside of me. I wouldn't even look. And he, j- he just called my name at just the appropriate time and uh, there was no need to look. And then, you know, I always knew he was there so I could backheel it. So to answer your, your, your listener's question, it was almost telepathic. And uh, Kenny was also a really interesting um, person to play with. And when Kenny was on song... He he was the best player in the world, without a doubt. Uh, When he had a shocker, when Kenny had a shocker, it was a bit of a shocker as well. Um, You you, you know, and and I guess that was a mood thing. Um, But I think there was a certain telepathy with all of those Liverpool players, between everybody. There was just a magic in the air, like there has been recently, you know, with their their recent wins. And of course, uh, when you... When you first joined Liverpool, that would have been with Ray Clements in the sticks, wouldn't it? Ray was in the sticks, yeah, yeah. Sadly passed uh, away a couple of weeks ago. uh, I know, I know. I I had quite a bit to do with Ray when I first arrived, Um, and he was very kind to me. And I've had quite a a bit to do with him uh, uh, in retirement, Um, and he he quite often came. And uh, I spent time with him on Orlando in Florida. I lived there on a golf course. Uh, and I was always happy to see his uh, smiling face, and uh, he loved the golf, so uh, a beautiful man, beautiful human being, and, uh, and what a keeper. What a keeper. And as a West Ham fan, I, I tend to forget that he was ever at Tottenham. He's always, always a Liverpool goalkeeper for me. Mate, he was there for seven years, and the Tottenham fans love him. I mean, you'd hate him, but that's acceptable.
0: <laughs> and then yeah, the Prid- man. Then you've got mm-hmm. the predator boot story, Um Someone asked me, did you, did you come across that by sticking a, a rubber from a table tennis paddle to a boot? Is that the story?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, one sec, sorry. Uh, I, I didn't come across it like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, what had happened is I spent, you know, years and years and years in the boot room polishing boots. I spent years and years in a car park trying to figure out what part of foot on what part of ball to what effect, to what skill, to what speed and accuracy so I could get home for the beans on toast and watch uh, Coronation Street in Apples, with, with the other lads so I could be one of the, the young pros or apprentices. So I didn't blindly come across the idea of the predator, uh, but uh, what had happened was Um, I'd always loved soccer boots and in fact, uh, for a a big part of the the early Middlesbrough days, rather than take cash off the players, if Sunes had a pair of Puma Kings or, um, you know, uh, Willie Madrin uh, had a pair of, uh, you know, Adidas World Cups, I would take boots as the payment. So I had a fashion, you know, like women love handbags and high heel shoes. (laughs) I got this fetish about soccer boots so so soccer boots were my currency that's what i'm getting to so when i retired uh from liverpool um and that's another story um at 27 years of age i retired uh, my sister got very very sick um and and, and needed help so so i retired and uh, i said i would never play again and i didn't i said i'd never be involved with the game but two little kids turned up in australia a place called avalon And they said, Mr. Johnson, we're the local soccer team and we're not very good. You know, these kids were 9, 10, something like that. Um, Can you come and coach us? So I looked at their little faces and had a ball under their arm and, you know, they were cheeky monkeys. I said, ah, all right, I'll be down there in 20 minutes. So I went down and I was teaching them how to swerve a ball. And I said, well, look, swerving is like a a, a table tennis bat or a tennis racket where you put topspin on it or you put backspin. I said you do the same thing with your feet and with your shoes, right? You 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 put a language in English on it. So everybody agreed and nodded. And then one of the little kids put his hand up and said, oh, "I'm sorry, Mr. Johnston, but uh, our boots are made of uh, leather and not rubber, like a table tennis. But and it's raining and uh, and it's slippery and it's wet. Uh, and then and I said, "Well, you're a hundred percent right." Uh, and then it started to pour down and we had to end the session. So I was driving home I was saying, and those kids are really, really right there. right? Knowing what I know about the boots and the ball. Um, and by the way, when I say science, I got so into the science of, of, of the football. Do you, know, do you know what a scientific name is? It's, it's a truncated icosahedron with all the pentagons and the hexagons stitched together. No, but, but in science it is. And the swerve is the, the high and low pressure, the same high and low pressure that cricket bowlers polish one side of the ball so that it slips through the air, right, as it's going, you know, on its trajectory through the velocity, and one side slows down on one side, which creates the spin, and the, the, um, and it's the spin and what's it called? The swerve, like a soccer yeah. ball. So the, um, the leather of the boot didn't quite engage in the polyurethane that the balls were made of. So I thought the kids are right. I rushed home. I got a table tennis bat. I pulled it off the, the, the sleeve. I stuck it onto my boots and I wrapped it round with elastic band. I went out in the backyard and I, I kicked the ball with a bit of a side spin on it, you know, sort of swerve. And it squealed like a pig. Uh-huh. And the butadine in the rubber cut right through to the polyurethane through the water and you know it squealed literally like a pig and it's fun like leather could never spin it spin it so 100% right again this was uh, a long time ago it was 25 years ago no internet so i looked up patents i went to the lawyer right and i spent about 2 years and a lot of money to get some patents right to have a look at how it could be a bigger sweet spot, like a table, te- uh, like a tennis racket, more grip, like a table tennis bat, but fundamentally still a soccer boot. And I got that patented, and it cost a fortune. And I got a whole bunch of um, models made of it, prototypes made out of rubber, rubber and leather combination. And I took it to Adidas, and you know what they said? They, they didn't take it first of all, did they? No, they said, they said it's that, that swear word again that starts with S. And they said,
0: <laughs> it'll
1: never work. We, we, uh, we know what you're talking about, um, but we've, we've never heard of you, right, as a, you know, as a soccer player. Uh, you know, uh, they said, the German guys, and um, they said, it, it, it'll never work. So I took it to Nike, and they said, no, it'll never work. Don't get it. I took it to Puma. They said, well, have you taken it to Adidas? I said, yes, I have. They said, well, they said, it'll never work. Well, it won't work. You know, it's a, it's a rubber boot. Uh, I took it to um, Reebok. They said no. I took it to Umbro. They all said no. But it's a little bit like uh, Jack Charlton. I, I knew that they were coming at it from their perspective, but I knew it worked because I'd spent years, what part of foot on what part of ball to what effect, so I had to solve the problem. So I thought there's only one thing to do. Um, I need some German players to talk to the German um, uh, people at, at, at Adidas. So I turned up at Munich and I, um, I went to, uh, knocked on the door, who are you? Oh, I'm Craig Johnson from Australia, played for Liverpool. Uh, I, I want to see the Kaiser, uh, the, the, uh, um, Franz Beckenbauer. And they said, oh, he's a very busy man. I said, yeah, but please tell him what I've just told you. So the woman went away. She came back and she said, look, Mr. Beckenbauer knows who you are and he would really like to see you. Can you come back tomorrow? And do you have four of these things, these rubber things that you talked about? And I said, yes. So uh, next day I turned back, came back. Again, it was December, snow, middle of Munich, freezing cold. I had four right foot, size eight and a half, uh, they were called Superboot, S-U-P-A boot. I call them Superboot, okay, and because uh, that, that was the mould, size eight-and-a-half right foot. Franz Beckenbauer turned up. He had Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. He had Paul Breitner. He had uh, Hansi Muller. Four of the greatest German players that ever played, they all put the shoes on, and I had a, a mini uh, uh, camcorder, um, and I followed them around, uh, kicking the ball to each other backwards and forwards. And they were saying, yes, uh, jawohl, uh, das that is good You know, um, a couple of shizers thrown in. And then uh, <laughs> I thought, hang on, this is headed in the right direction. So I was filming, filming, filming. Then they all got together, right? I got them together and I said, well, talk to each other. And they're going, Yeah, das that is gummy," And, uh, you know, making things and... Uh, making gestures that the ball's going further and it's going straighter and you know that there's a a, a, a sweet spot you know blah 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 then uh, i said to them you know well what are you saying uh, and they said well it's on the video you know uh so then i shot from munich back up to nuremberg uh, where adidas was and uh, they were having um a, a meeting with all the board of directors uh, because Adidas were actually going bankrupt, they were trading as insolvent, and they were selling the company for one dollar to a French man called Bernard Tapie. Oh,
0: which, Marseille guy.
1: Yes, yes. Which is a big deal for a German com- uh, company to be selling to a, a French guy for a dollar. It was a huge embarrassment. So anyway, um, I I went back to the security guards and I said, look. Um, I've got a tape to show the the directors. And the guy said, well, no, they've already said no. I said, yes, but I've got the Kaiser on the video. And I was showing them the video, the Kaiser. So he's phoned up and he said, oh, the Kaiser's uh, doing a video or something. So they said, well, then come on up. So anyway, I came up and they were, you know, in in a somber mood, of course. So um, I said, look, you've got to see this because uh, Breitner, Ruhmenegger, the Kaiser, they're all, so what are they saying? I said, I don't know. I don't speak German. So they stopped the, the presentation they were doing. They put in the tape. In, within 35 seconds, they all stood up, all 15, 20 of them, and they all started clapping, and they said, this is the future of our brand. Then they said, you can't leave this room without doing a deal with us. And that's how the deal was done.
0: Fantastic.
1: And then and then you went on to invent the traction sole, is that right? No, no the traction sole was already invented and it came part of Dass Superboot was the upper, right, with the with the fins and jets and it was also the traction sole plate. So I'd already designed them and patented both. And, it was and then you were, the, Sorry, then, then you you've got the the
0: musical talents as well with the did you, you were involved with the Anfield Rap?
1: I wrote the Anfield Rap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and just, just to finish the Liverpool uh, story. But they, that, no, no, j- just so you know, they said, well, you, uh, we won't do a deal with you. And they did a, a really good deal. We won't do a deal unless you come and live in Germany and push the project through. So I had to go and live in Nuremberg um, for two or three years. Uh and uh, I, I brought the family, my family to Dublin, to Ireland, because I didn't want them to live in Germany. And uh, so I commuted from, from Dublin and lived four or five days a week in, in, in Germany. So I ran the department that ran the Predator. People think I had a very small thing to do with it, but I ran the whole show. Uh, and effectively, because they had no money and they, they couldn't do it. And, and even... I said, look, we need a a marketing budget to go and get some good players to do this. We need some cameras. And they said, we can't afford it cameras. We can't afford anything. So I paid for the camera work out of my own pocket. So people think I had a a little bit to do with the Predator. I owned the Predator patents. Adidas never owned them. So it's a bit of a long story, and people need to know that. It's really important. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's really good. Until they... uh, Yeah, until I, uh, it's another story. Uh, (laughs) And you pretty much saved Addie at the same time. Yeah, well, the real story will come out one day, believe me. Um, But there you go, there you go. Uh, The Anfield Rap um, was a song about um, all the dressing room characters and their accents. And uh, rap hadn't arrived in England, but I always loved the old Run DMC tunes and, you know, Walk This Way and all of that stuff. And, uh, and every year, you know, clubs did these awful, awful uh, yeah. cup final songs, you know, like glory, glory, Man United or yeah. blue is a colour, football is a game. Even, even we had uh, Diamond Lights with Chris Waddle and uh, <laughs> uh, Glenn Hoddle, you know. Um, and the funny thing is they were dreadful. So uh, we, we got approached, the club got approached the players to do a cup final song because we're playing against Arsenal in one of the league cup finals. So we heard it and all the players went, oh, that's dreadful. And I was always writing little speeches or sketches or jokes or gags in the dressing room, you know, presentations, stupid stuff because I'm, I'm a good writer. So um, they said, well, why don't you write a song? So I said, uh, okay. So um, I went away. The next day I, I wrote the rap and I brought it back. And they said, this is great. Let's do it. And uh, it got to number three in the charts. uh, But we got beat by Arsenal in the League Cup. uh, And Madonna got number one with Like a Virgin. So it got to number three in the charts. But the whole thing was about Scousers, two Scousers in the dressing room, uh, Steve McMahon and John Aldrich. And it was about uh, Danish people, Zimbabweans, Australians, Scotsmen, Welshman, uh, uh, Johnny Barnes is about Jamaicans, it's <laughs> about all these uh, uh, accents. So, uh, might you me give you a bit of it? we'll give you a bit of it. So, o- Aldo, Aldo, and Steve McMahon are walking down the street, and it's like, All right, Aldo, sound as a pound. I'm Custy la, but there's nothing down. The rest of the lads ain't got it, sus. We'll have to learn them to talk like us. And then Bruce comes on, you know, and he says, uh, I'm rapping, now, man. I'm repping for fun. I'm the goalie, the number one. You can take the mick. Don't call me clown. Any more cheap, man, you're going down. <laughs> so it went on and on like that. And then, uh, you know, uh, the jocks, the jocks, which would, would be uh, Gal Gleash. uh wasn't soon as he was gone. Uh, Alan oh, Hanson. Stevie Nichol. And... Uh, I think it was uh, uh, where four Highland lads are either the new and there's four of us and only two of you. So if you want me trouble and you don't want a slap, you'd better teach be us the Adfield rap. <laughs> 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 anyway, I went on and on like that. And then, uh, then, then, uh, then what I, 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 I got uh, uh, Brian Moore. Remember the beautiful voice of Brian Moore? Yeah. The commentator, soccer commentator who did all the FA Cup finals and he he came on, he said, they're bigger stars. Uh, they've won the league, bigger stars than Dallas. They've got more silver than Buckingham Palace. Uh, and Steve, Steve McMahon sure can rap. About time he had a, an England cap. So, Bobby, Ro- come on, Bobby Robson, he's the man, because if anyone can, Macca can, Macca can, Macca can, Macca can. Macca can. So, uh, <laughs> So the lads loved it, and we said, okay, let's, let, let, let's do it. And uh, I, I had a little role in there. And, uh, but it was all about the fun and the crack of our dressing room. And the funny thing is, to this day, it, uh, it stands up, you know, as a, a piece of culture. The Scousers love it. Uh-huh. It's considerably better than any other football song that's ever been written, with the possible exception of the other one that John Barnes was involved in. World Did Emotion. You? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote that section. Ah. <laughs> oh well. I, 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 I'll tell you the story I, uh, I was uh, sitting down I used to live in um, a place called High Wickham. so what happened was um, it was a Saturday, Sunday afternoon, Sunday I think, and the phone rings and it's Johnny, Johnny Barnes and, and uh, Peter Beardsley and they said um, Kroogie and it's a long story but my nickname at Liverpool was Crook it's a long story Croogie, Croogie <laughs> you've got to get down to Bisham Abbey, uh, to the studio in Bisham Abbey. And I said, why? And they said, because we're here with a band called New Order, right? And they've just figured out that we can't sing. <laughs> and I said, what? And I said, not, everyone knows you can't sing. And they said, yes, but we've got this song to do for the World, uh, the World Cup, you know, uh, sorry, the European Championships. So they said, well, I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, well, you've got to come down and write a rap for us. And I said, mate, I'm with the kids, blah, blah, blah. I said, look, give me 10 minutes. So it wasn't far. So I drove down there and then um, I heard them sing, Chrissy Waddle, Peter Beardsley, Big Big of Oh, mate, it was atrocious. And there was a bunch of the old <laughs> And the, the New Order guys were beside themselves because that's a tricky song. Love's got the world in motion. You, know, you can't sing. It's a tricky song. And they were nowhere near it. They, it was They couldn't use it. It was, they were going to abandon it. So I said, look, I'll wrap, give me a napkin. So it like this. So I just said, okay, dig, dig a barns. Uh, catch me if you can, because I'm the England man. And what you're looking at a master plan. You know, I ain't no hooligan. And the, uh, hooliganism was a big deal at the time. Yeah, this ain't right, no football course. song. Three lions on my chest. You know, I can't go wrong. We're playing for England. We're singing the song. And that was it. Now listen to this on the, on the album, on the album, right? It says written by new order and Craig Johnston. I've never got a single, single, uh, penny of royalties. And uh-huh. it was number one for like six weeks or more. Oh Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. I know not a single royalty. So if you new order blokes are listening, right? You, you owe me a pint of Guinness or a, or a pint of <laughs> ale or something. But uh, you owe me. You owe me. So does Digger Barnes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so bringing, bringing everyone up to date. So um, what are you doing these days? How are you, how are you filling your time?
1: Uh, well, I, I feel blessed to have had a number of lives and, and careers. Um, I, I had a career in television when I, uh, um, when I retired from soccer because I had no money coming in. Um, and my sister's hospital bills were enormous. So I had a, a, a career in television as a, as a producer director, not as a front person. Um, and um, I'm using all of the skills I've learned to leave a legacy behind. And uh, I know that, that every kid that loves soccer, right, girl or boy, can be a better player at night than they were in the morning. And I want to pass whether it be a cricket player or a golfer or a singer or and and it's going to sound funny as a human being if you have a plan for incremental daily improvement and you think about long and short-term achievable goals right and you ask me what I'm doing now I'm leaving a legacy but I think that kids uh have it a lot tougher than we have had it because in our day, there was black and white, there was right and wrong, there was um, good and bad, uh, and you knew who the bad guys were and the good guys. Now, I think there's so much gray and the bad messages. You you knew where they were. Now, there's so much gray, there's so many things being sold to, to so many kids by so many people, by so many outlets. And just think about our day, black and white television, that was it, you know, and that was only, you know, certain hours of the day. So one thing that cuts through is sport, and particularly team sport. And when you retire from sport, you miss the crack and the camaraderie. And then you've got them. I've got five league championship medals. I've got uh, FA Cup winners medal, you know, um, uh, European championship medals, League Cup, charity shells coming out my ears. Right? it's not what you won. It's who you won it with. And it's how you won it, what style you won it with, And those are the lasting memories that shape you as a human being, as a person. And I think our kids are missing out on that glorious stuff that we had growing up with our sport in our day. So somehow someone's got to make a stand and actually, right, put a legacy in place that fundamentally goes back to the good old-fashioned team sports that build camaraderie and social behaviour and and a feeling of self-esteem an individual but also as part of a team so yet you're not bigger than the team we all were knocked down by our teammates right it 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 crafted us as as human beings right and uh i think sports people have a have a a commitment to the community because they're so blessed to be able to get paid for playing and and that's my legacy and 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 steve war and i'll I'll just explain it in another way steve war has this beautiful charity that that uh, that his foundation um, uh, gives money to every creates money through the Steve War bike ride I've done it twice twice now and he's got some incredible legends on it like Kathy Freeman um, you, you know uh, wonderful you know rugby players uh, union players uh, league players just just great sportsmen and it's um, for children with rare diseases, and if they've got rare diseases, the government uh, finds it very hard to support these things. So Steve's charity raises millions for it, and it's unbelievable. And he said to me, he said, he said you've got a foundation, haven't you? And, uh, and I said, yeah. you know. And, and this was like about three years ago. He said, where are you going to, what's your foundation for? Who's your recipients? And I said, mate, you know what I just want? I want more kids. I said, now that I've been back in Australia, I see kids walk around with their head down. I see them, they don't look you in the face. They don't smile at you and they don't say, hi, how are you going, mate? Like they used to. When they serve you in the shops, they, they bark at you. You know, this is young, young young children, young servers. Right, girls and boys. And I said, where's the joy gone? Where's the, the love gone that we had, you know, like the, just a smile. Anyway, I said to Steve, I just want more kids playing more sport more often and running and laughing and shouting and screaming and letting off steam because, see, uh, yeah, I had a bunch of cancer, yeah? And when you have cancer and it's bad, and I've had 10 major operations, you can see it because you've got a camera. Oh, yeah. I, just had, I had another 165 stitches in my face, uh three months ago and they've done a great job with Stitcher. I've had 10 major operations, but you, you, you fly close to the line and you say, mate, what was the point of my struggle if I can't pass, pass back um, those um, uh, lessons I learned the hard way about how to be better, you know? Not just better at soccer, better at taking criticism, better at, uh, but showing empathy. For, for teammates that, 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 that need it. And anyway, I, I know I'm going on, I sound like a preacher. I don't mean to, but that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it in a really, really, really clever way that nobody will be preached to. They'll just do it automatically.
0: That's really clever. Craig, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, you've given us so much of your time uh, and we really, really do appreciate it. And some fascinating stories. I think we'll have to get you back for... Uh, episode two I think with (laughs) some other stories because there seems to be so much that we can talk about
1: there's plenty of stories uh, plenty of stories Uh, I've I've, I really have had had three or four or five charmed lives and um, one of the things I'm trying to do is is tell those tell the story as a documentary or a movie um, because not because I want to be famous or, or, or have a big head or anything but the kids need to, to hear the story, which creates the pr- platform. And, and, and the fun, funny thing is I've uh, I've coached kids and when that, they introduced me in the local kids here, um, they said, this is Craig Johnson. He's from Newcastle and he had a bad operation when he was young come through, come through that. And the kids, oh, yeah, whatever. And then they said, no, he played for Liverpool. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah whatever, you know. <laughs> And then they say, and he invented the Predator boot. He did what? He invented the Predator. How did he do that? He do that? <laughs> so, so you get them in the end. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, okay, well, I'll tell you the, the real Predator story next time and how they dutted me. And I'll, uh, um, I'll tell you the, the, the story about Tiger Woods and the Gulf. There, there's a dozen different ones there uh, that, that are all funny. <laughs> right? And uh, my room partner for uh, 10 glorious years was Bruce Grobler. So there's another <laughs> round of applause.
0: <film>. Yeah, well, we thank, you, we thank you for your time and um, we will definitely get you back and we'll hear, hear those other stories. But uh, in the meantime, Craig Johnson, legend, and the man who's like a cat seems to have led nine lives. Um, but we thank you for your time and um, we will catch up again very, very soon.
1: Good on you there, Dazzler, and good on you, Webby.